My name is Sam, and I have the privilege of getting to preach a lot here, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, if not, we've got free ones in the back, you can just grab. Open your Bible to the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, starts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth, long time ago. But it's a church that honestly uh, probably sounds a little bit like our church or other churches. It's young, it's uh, growing, and uh, it's full of passion, but Paul is writing to direct that passion a little bit better. So if you'd read with me, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're new, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, And so that helps us not to dance around things that are difficult. And these first four, five, six sermons of Corinthians have been very foundational, kind of setting the stage for what the issues are in, or what issues are being struggled with over in Corinth, but also how Paul's going to approach it uh, and foundationally building it on the gospel. As we get more into Corinthians, it's going to be very practical, and we'll have to deal with some very controversial issues. Uh, everything from um, sex in marriage to sex outside of marriage, lawsuits between believers, uh, spiritual gifts, all these things that honestly have divided the church over centuries. Uh, So we'll have the uh, joy of uh, delving into those uh, all. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, finishing up that chapter today. Verse 6 is where we'll start, and I'll read and we will get to work. Verse 6 says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for its power to change our hearts, to open our eyes, to teach us, to comfort us, and to convict us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that our relationship with you will change today. That we will begin to listen to you more deeply and to seek wisdom in you and not in the world. I ask that you will change us all by the power of your word. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I saw this week my 39th, yeah, 39, some of you are like, that's too young, that's too old, 39th birthday, come and go, 
And as I did, I began to uh, kind of evaluate how things have changed over that time from where, you know, I've, the generations and times I've grown up in, long live the 80s, and, and all the things that have happened. And then kind of stood back and just looked at culture, like how I've changed, how it's changed. And so as I looked at culture and trying to, granted, biasly, uh, evaluate what it's like, I think I came to the conclusion that our culture has grown increasingly juvenile. And I have reasons for that. Um, ironically, uh, with all the new ideas, and there's been a ton, um, there always is, every generation, all the new discoveries and new inventions that our culture has come up with, um, it seems like we've regressed in almost every way. Um, some of those ways we've regressed are politically, um, some socially, some materially, financially, intellectually, um, and definitely emotionally. I don't see a lot of progress. I see a lot of regress, and maybe that comes with every generation that looks back at the last generation. But our culture has certain characteristics. Let me share some with you that you may disagree with. It's my opinion, and I get to preach, so you get to listen. But you may disagree, but I think it's pretty accurate. Um, Our culture has become, over time, very much devoted to immediate right now gratification. Instant everything. Our culture is, uh, I think, largely devoid of long-term thinking about life and the world. Uh, we don't think past maybe the next season of what's going to happen on our latest TV show. All right, we don't think about the future of economics as much as what's the immediate now. Um, not a lot of long-term planning or thinking, it seems. Uh, we have a culture that I'm th- pretty sure is devoted to feelings more than it's devoted to truth. A culture that... Um, justifies itself by blame-shifting people and organizations in the past versus actually accepting personal responsibility. Um, A culture that is committed and willing to give bailouts to many and unwilling to maybe allow people to accept consequences of decisions. It's a culture that I think uh, more than anything is really captivated by the superficial and the appearance as opposed to the depth of, of truth. And when I say culture, I'm really talking about us, right? When I was a high school teacher, they always like, oh, school has no spirit. I'm like, you're the school, right? So I guess you don't have no spirit. No, I do. I don't know. So we're not outside of culture. We're within culture. So some of these things are describing us whether we try to be this way or not, and definitely the influence is on us. But as we look at the culture and the things that are changing, a culture includes everything from politics to education to entertainment, everything. We see that it's moving a certain direction. Uh, With each new law that has been passed, and we passed several just this past year, uh, it moves us further away from historical biblical truth. And at the same time, Strangely, it's a culture that claims to be more spiritual and spiritually wise than ever. And while our culture claims to be the wisest and most powerful, like the most advanced in the history of the world, think about it. We still um, do not have the power to save ourselves from child abuse from marital abuse, 
from substance abuse, from sexual abuse, from gun abuse, from animal abuse, from environmental abuse, from money abuse, and the list goes on. That's how powerful we are. And only children, right? Only children view themselves with such distortion, believing that they're better than they actually are. I don't say that negatively, just very factual. More powerful than they actually are. More wise than they actually are. That's, that's the, the perceptions and the attitude of children. And so I think as I step back from our culture and look at it, the culture I live within, the culture I probably help perpetuate, we look, sound, and feel like Corinth. The city that this letter is written to that's thousands of years old. And they love the wisdom of the world and the ways of the world. Believing that that is the way to grow, that is the way to achieve, that is the way to progress. Now the Corinthian church, right, the Christians, think about this. They've bought into this and they claim to be wise and really powerful. But Paul has said that they have abandoned the cross. Chris talked about this last week. That God defines as the very source of power and wisdom. That's the thing they've abandoned. So, you have uh, a Christian church claiming to be spiritual without preaching Jesus. Claiming to be mature without knowing Jesus. Claiming to be wise without obeying Jesus. And if you're not sure, that actually could describe many churches and Christians today. Claiming to be wise, claiming to be spiritual. Maybe a little Jesus sprinkled in there every now and then. But ultimately not centered on Him. Because when you center a church on Jesus, you have to talk about things like sin. Grace as well, but there is no grace without sin. Right? It's undeserved favor because the people don't deserve it because they're in rebellion. So when a church stops being centered on Jesus, which is what we have in this letter, what you have is a church that stops talking about Jesus, but actually stops talking to Jesus, and stops listening to Jesus, and stops learning from Jesus, and stops depending upon Jesus, and begins to depend upon themselves. And even in those situations, there may actually be in the life of the individual, or a church, they may actually still have popularity, and acceptance, but they will have no power. They may actually have growth and success even, which is scary, but they won't have maturity. They may and probably will have charisma and excitement and awesome things that are very engaging, but there will be absolutely no Holy Spirit to convict, to comfort, and to lead and teach. And so the Corinthians believe the reason why they've kind of moved away from Jesus at the center of all things is that they've outgrown the elementary gospel. It's basic. It's rudimentary. Dangerous. Some of you might think that. right? You come on Sunday and you're like, man, these guys just talk about Jesus all the time. Talk about sin and forgiveness and grace. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Don't you have anything else to talk about? No. We don't. In fact, if you go in the book of Acts, 
and you just start to read, beginning in Acts 2, the sermons that Peter does, they're basic. Jesus. Jesus sinless. Jesus dying for your sins. Jesus raising from the dead. People crying, repenting, coming to Jesus. Church is born. That's it. Basic. You never outgrow the gospel. You never, ever, ever outgrow the gospel because you never, ever outgrow your need for a Savior. You never outgrow your need for a Lord. Someone to guide, someone to protect, someone to govern. Growing beyond the gospel is like growing beyond water. You need it to live. And the funny thing is, or maybe the scary thing is, uh, when I, this is going to be, this is going to sound like total nerddom, but when the last Star Wars movie came out, I, know, I decided to be one of those guys, okay? I'm going to stand in line. So it was down in Monroe, it was with a teacher friend of mine, we decided to get tickets and stand in line for the first show at midnight on Thursday or whatever it was, right? So we're in line, and we're in line with freaks. Mind you, I might look like one of the freaks at that point, but we're in line with freaks. Why do I say that? Here's why. They are doing lightsaber duels constantly, but they are actually, like, serious about it. It's not like, ha, 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 lightsaber. They're, like, serious about it. There are guys that look like Chewbacca, sounded like Chewbacca, and wanted you to believe that they were Chewbacca. Now, the reason I tell you the story is because someone had the brilliant idea of monster drinks, right? Monster, the, the energy drink. Giving those out free. So there's a van driving by handing out monster drinks to guys with weapons. And they're not normal like lightsabers. They're like serious glow-in-the-dark, like hurt somebody. And they're chasing each other. Double-fisting monster drinks. And they're, do you know what that kind of energy drink does to someone in high doses? It's scary. Okay? It's freakish. So imagine that you go, you know, I, I need to live on water. And you decide, spiritually speaking, to be downing energy drinks. You know what? There is water in that energy drink, and there's a heck of a lot more. And it screws you up. And spiritually speaking, there's a lot of Christians downing energy drinks like no one's business, and it gives them the energy, it gets them by, but it's destroying them. Because it's not the water of the cross. Didn't think I was going there, did you? Like, whoa, whoa, where did that go from? There are lots of things to drink in this world that even have water in them, but they have a bunch of other stuff. And so like all of us, these, these Corinthian Christians, are, they're not just like abandoning water because, you know, it's evil. They actually think that they're doing something good. They actually want to be more wise. They want to grow and, and have more insight into who God is and, and know what He thinks and know what they're supposed to do. I believe that is their motivation. The problem is they're doing the same thing that our first parents did. Who is that? Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 is where all the problems start. Genesis 3 is in the Garden of Eden, right? The serpent comes and, and begins to tell them, hey, I know the Lord said don't eat from this tree, but I'm telling you, it's okay. Um, the Lord is holding out on you. 
Um, he's not telling you the truth. You actually might become like God. And so what do they, after hearing that, look at the tree and think or say? says, our first parents who saw that the tree, quote, was to be desired to make one wise. To make one wise. And what did they look to make themselves wise, to get wise? Away from God and His Word. That's what the Corinthians are doing. And so Paul in this passage is going to say, look, let me tell you what the nature of true wisdom is. Let me tell you how you actually get it. And then let me tell you a good test to know whether you have it or not, which is a lot of us where we're at. It says in verse 6 there, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Okay, so up to this point, Paul has slammed wisdom. And that's because the Corinthians are all about wisdom, all about knowledge. They talk about it, they argue about it. And ultimately, he says, it has no power. And by power, I mean no power to save, no power to fix, no power to grow, no power to to defeat that problem you have in your life. It has no power, and so he rejects it comprehensively. and says, it's just dumb to pursue the world's wisdom. But then he goes back and he says, but I do impart wisdom. And he says, it's a special kind of wisdom. And it's different than anything the world might offer. See, the world has its own wisdom. And wisdom, you got, it's not the same as knowledge. Right? Anyone can obtain knowledge and gather information. When we talk about wisdom, what we're talking about is actually understanding that comes as a result of wisdom. Of taking whatever you know and actually applying it to your life. And so it becomes this spectacle, these kind of like glasses that you can perceive the world because of this. And wisdom helps you to make decisions based off what you know. Decisions like, or applying to your life, for example, like how you live, obviously, but how you work. Like there's wise working, there's unwise working. How you suffer. You're actually perceiving suffering differently because of your knowledge, because of what you know. And you act and behave a certain way within the suffering and how you relate to people. All the problems you're going to see in the Corinthian church. They actually believe they have wisdom. But the wisdom of this world is um, always changing. And it's always changing because every new quote, progressive generation, looks back at the older generation and goes, well, they didn't know as much as us. Right? We look back and go, well, we've got a lot more insight now. We've got a lot more technology, a lot more. I mean, if they were like us, they would have figured this stuff out a long time ago. And so it's always changing. There's always new voices rising up to be the spokespersons of wisdom. And these Spokes, these rulers, if you will, Paul uses rulers. The rulers are all kinds of people that rise and actually influence our behavior. Sometimes subconsciously, but they do. Every new generation has them. There are political leaders. There are social leaders. There are religious leaders. There are even business leaders. And then there's leaders that I think have a large influence today, which is entertainment leaders where they are actually speaking and the amount of exposure we have to TV shows and and just them speaking begins to shape how we see the world. 
And how you see the world affects how you live the world and how you make decisions. And so men and women, people, left to themselves will have these voices. Whoever the loudest voice is or or the most pervasive voice, these voices will begin to shape their reality and their world and how they engage with it. And so what happens is this, and I know you see this in the culture. Claiming to be wise, right? Claiming to be wise, apart from God, the world fills itself up with adult-sized children. What do you mean by that? I counsel a lot of people, sometimes individually, some as couples. And the most common thing I probably tell people is that you're very juvenile. I'm not saying that as some kind of uh, condemnation compared to me. You know, I'm so mature and you're immature. It's that their thinking is actually childish. Their thinking is juvenile. The way they see things and experience things is very childlike. Now you think for a second about our culture and how it behaves. How we behave, right? It's like children. Why do I think that? Well, here's how children act. First of all, children make very large claims. If you have kids, this will sound very familiar. Children do not listen. I love my kids, but I know their weakness. Children are impulsive. Children are pleasure seekers and pain avoiders. Children speak before they think. Children are largely self-centered. Children compete for attention. Children struggle with identity. Children react. Children are emotional roller coasters. Children are foolish. Children are naive. Children are messy. Children are overconfident. Children are vulnerable. Children complain. Children make excuses. Children are easily frustrated, easily tempted, and easily frightened. And they most often choose the easier wrong over the harder right. But more than anything, you know what children do? Children never admit that they're children. Right? The worst thing, Landon, my my second son, the worst thing he could think to tell his brother that he is is a baby. That's like the worst insult. You're a baby. Did that for years. Like, what? Because in his mind, the worst thing you can be is a baby or a child. Our world is full of adult-sized children who have a distorted view of themselves, of their wisdom, and they act just like this. And guess what? This is Corinth, and this is us, our culture. So Paul comes and says, yeah, you guys think you're wise, but you're really foolish, and he offers a completely different kind of wisdom that's otherworldly. And Paul says that this wisdom, the word of the cross, right, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is received though they're trying to reject it, it is received by the mature, by spiritual adults. Now, this passage has been just brutalized by a lot of pastors and churches. Because you, oh, the mature. Well, I must be in that category, right? Paul is not talking about a group of spiritual elite super-Christians who understand more than the common Christian. He's actually just talking about Christians. 
Paul is confronting those who are wrongly dismissing the gospel as childish. See, the mature are simply those who accept the foolishness of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sin as true wisdom and looks at the world and its value system of success as foolish. So Paul starts to contrast. He's like, let me tell you what God's wisdom is like compared to the world's wisdom. This is what it is. The first thing he says is that the wisdom is secret. Well, I don't like that. What's that mean? It means God is mysterious. We really struggle with mystery. We like to have all the answers. We like to know everything there is to know. And we like to know it immediately. But God is mysterious. And I hate to be the one to tell you this. But really, I don't. God does not, will not answer every question you can come up with. He's not obligated to, and He just simply doesn't. God is mysterious, and He gives us the answers that we need when we need them. And some of the answers God gives, mysteriously, really don't satisfy. In fact, many of them confound our intellect, They confront and offend some of our emotions, and sometimes they make our experiences, they turn them upside down. God is mysterious. His ways are above our ways. That's where it begins. He goes on to say that the wisdom of God is not only secret, but it's hidden. Oh, great. Now I've got to find it. It's like God going, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you, right? It's hidden, and it's hidden by God, which means he's like the best hide-and-seek ever. Right? So you, you can't find it, even if you want to. Men have tried. Right, It's not something that can be discovered. Not something that can be achieved with enough intellect or education. It's not something that can be obtained by our own efforts. The wisdom of God is something that is revealed. If it was something that could be discovered with great education or great power, Paul says they never would have killed Jesus. These guys had all the religious, you know, education you can imagine, all the intellect you can imagine, all the power you can imagine, and they still didn't get it. They killed the Lord of glory. God's wisdom must be revealed. God must go, bam! He must open your eyes. A blind man cannot choose one day to see. Think about that. We sing that song, Amazing Grace, all the time. I once was blind. Do you really believe that you were blind? Or do you believe one day you went, you know what? I think I'm going to give Jesus a go. He seems like a good option. God's wisdom is revealed. God's ways are revealed by Him. But I think the coolest part, I love this. I mean, this gets excited. I don't know what your problem is. He says that God's wisdom was decreed before all the ages for our glory. Okay, this is, this is going to fry your brain a little bit. Okay, so, so stay with me. It's just awesome though. Okay, unlike the world that new wisdom comes up with every generation. God's wisdom though doesn't pass away with like a fad or a new generation or even a new discovery. It's eternal. It doesn't change because it was founded before the world even began. God's ways. The way things would go. So, God 
planned, okay? God planned for His creation, His children, to find meaning, joy, hope in the cross of Christ before He created anything. It wasn't like Adam sinned, he went, oh no! I never saw, did anyone see that coming? You realize God's never surprised, right? Or He ceases to be God. 2 Timothy 1.9, awesome verse. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began. What does that mean? It means that in His wisdom, God planned for grace. What's grace? Undeserved favor. Okay, wait a second. How can you have grace without God planned for sin. Well, I don't know if I like that. That's okay. It's just the Bible. And if He planned for grace and planned for sin, He planned for salvation and He planned for us to be made holy with Him in eternity. I mean, that's beautiful. We're pl- he planned ahead of time. Well, this is how it's going to go. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be kind of messy in between. Awesome here. And I just take some comfort in that. We have a God that's not like, oh, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Okay, we'll try to make this work out. It's not like Plinko, right? Like, oh, bankrupt. Oops. God planned ahead of time. Oh, it gets better. Ephesians 4.1, right? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What's that mean? I think it's pretty clear. He planned before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. I mean, God's wisdom is old. Like old as in, it's so old that time can't even measure. It's outside of it. I love what um, Chronicles of Narnia, I read it differently now as an older person. You know, when I was a kid, you just kind of read through stuff. But I start, other stuff catches me. And if you never read the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've just seen the movies, you should read the books little bit better. But here's what Aslan says in talking about after Aslan comes back to life. So cool about the wisdom of God. It says that though the witch knew Aslan speaking, the deep magic, right, the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. And she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. If the witch could have looked a little past, well, she can't because she's a creation, right? Do we realize how big God is? I mean, we think we're so big. We think we are so in control. We got everything figured out and we're wise. And we know how God works. But we are so finite. And God is like, like the depth of His wisdom is greater than an ocean that could never, ever, ever be comprehended by a finite man. But, 
Paul says, like, that's God's wisdom. But he wants us to know him. And he shares that wisdom. It's like, well, how do, how do I get me some of that wisdom, right? How do I get that? Because that's what the Corinthians are looking for. He says that, verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He starts talking about the Holy Spirit. We don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, I think, in church, at least not enough. And if they do talk about it in churches, they almost go crazy with emotion about it or about Him. Where do we get this wisdom? Well, how do we mature spiritually? Well, maturing spiritually is a little bit different, very different, than maturing in any other way. Like when you physically mature, it just happens, right? For better or worse, it just happens. Things start hurting, things get bigger, Typically, don't get smaller, and that's the sad part of our existence. But physical maturity just happens. Intellectual maturity happens through education, through learning. We can kind of make that increase or decrease depending on what we do. And uh, emotional maturity just kind of naturally happens as we experience life. As we get older, we naturally throw off elementary things physically, intellectually, even emotionally, like, okay, I've grown from that. I've learned. That just happens. And we achieve greater understanding, greater discernment, greater stability, hopefully. But the experience of becoming a Christian, right, the experience of maturing as a Christian, is completely different. First, Christian birth is not about praying a prayer. Okay? You'll find that in the Bible. Christian birth is anything but natural. Christian birth comes through revelation. No one ever, no one ever decides to follow Christ before Christ calls that person to follow Him. Never. I know what it feels like. But Christ is the one that calls. And that call is irresistible. That call, when it comes, it speaks life into that which the Bible says is dead. It opens the eyes of those who are blind. Like I said, who is blind goes, I think I'm going to see now. It takes something else for you to be able to see. It removes that heart, right? It does that surgery. We can't just go, it does that surgery. There's a stone in there. And when Christ's call comes, that stone is removed and a heart that is beating for Jesus is placed in there by Jesus. And God, in that moment, that moment, adopts that person as his son or his daughter and fills that person with His Spirit who begins to dwell in Him. And that Spirit, Galatians says, not the individual, that Spirit individual is crying out, according to Galatians, Abba, Father, Daddy. There's a complete identity shift that is really has nothing to do with my efforts. There's a complete transformation, a change, a turn. That is the distinguishing characteristic between a believer and a non-believer. The presence of the Holy Spirit the moment an individual believes. And that Holy Spirit, the eternal Holy Spirit, that person 
third person of the Trinity is sitting in our hearts for those who put their faith in Christ. And He is not silent and He is not passive. He is not silent and He is not passive. He does exactly what Jesus said that He would do, that He was being sent to do. Which is what? To help teach us. To help comfort us. To bring to remembrance everything that Jesus said. So what does He do? He takes us back to basics. Constantly. So Christian growth is not moving beyond what's elementary. It's actually seeing and remembering what is elementary and taking that deeper into our hearts and applying it to our life. But see, blinded by sin, the world cannot see or imagine God's purposes in Christ. And there are many spirits who propose to be God, many spirits who propose to speak for God, but there's only one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who speaks and reveals the heart of God. And Paul talks about this. He's like, you know, there are things about you that no one else knows. It doesn't matter how close you are to people. There are things that only you know about you. In the same way, the Spirit of God is the only one that knows all things about God. There are certain things about God that cannot be understood by anywhere else but the Holy Spirit. And he says in that passage that the Holy Spirit searches the depths of God. Now think about that for a second. If he is searching the depths of God, not only does he know God, he knows everything there is to know. Like who is God? God is all-knowing. God knows all things past, all things present, all things future, all things possible. Think about that one for a while. And the Spirit searches the depths of God and knows all things there is to know about God and all things there is to know about anything. And we can access Him. We can talk to Him. We can hear Him. We can be comforted by Him and helped by Him. See, the the Holy Spirit desires and does intend to teach us and to help us understand everything that God wants us to know. So we all desire, I believe, to be wise. We all desire to know who God is. Eternity has been put in our hearts, the Bible says. We all desire to know, what does God think of me? What is God thinking about this? What does God want me to do? We all, we all desire that. The question is, where do you really look to get those answers? I mean, have you ever really prayed and, and asked for the Spirit to teach? As you make decisions, is that your, your motivation as you start? I, I really want to know. I mean, I, I made my pros and cons list, and that worked out well. But have you ever talked, maybe asking God who knows everything? And maybe part of your fear is that He'll tell you to do something that you actually don't want to do that won't make sense, but you know it's His will and it actually will be for His glory and your joy. It's just hard to believe because you can't comprehend it. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't work with my experience. I'm not sure. I better not talk to God. I'll just make my list and talk to friends. <laughs> right? How much do you really engage with the Holy Spirit? 
well, I, I went to a church that was kind of charismatic freaky, and so, okay, so now you're never going to talk to the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity who lives in your heart. The Holy Spirit has been given to teach us, and to lead us, and to guide us. And maturity does not come from lots of Bible studies and serving the church. It largely comes from walking and living and learning by the Word of God through the Spirit teaching us. And those go together. We'll make sure we attach that in a second. So that's where the wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from the world. It comes from God. So the question for all of us is, well, how do, I, how do I know I have it? How do I know I'm wise in the ways of God? How do I know that I'm listening to the Spirit of God and not just following that little voice in my head that's actually my flesh? Here comes the hard part. Paul gives us a very clear answer. And I think actually in this room and in the world, there are many of you who believe you're Christians and you're not. Many of you have been uh, claiming the name of Jesus, singing songs to Jesus, maybe even serving the name of Jesus, but you've been living your life according to the spirits of the world. That will lead to death. And there's some of us who are Christians in here, and you have been resisting the Spirit. You've learned, although you know you love Jesus, and I believe that, and you have the Holy Spirit, you have learned to jam your fist in His mouth as He screams at you not to do what you're doing. So, Paul gives us a pretty good test of how do I know that I'm actually being wise? How do I know that I'm actually listening to the, to the Spirit and not the spirits of this world? He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So there are only two kinds of people in this world and two kinds of people in this church. Believers and unbelievers. And we can all be fooled, but God cannot. There are those who truly trust Christ as not just their Savior. I've got my fire insurance and I'm not going to hell, but as their Lord, He is my master and owner and guide. There are those who are the people of God and those who, quite frankly, are the people of the world. And Paul says there's natural and spiritual. That's it. There's no, like, natural, whatever middle would be, right? Natural and spiritual, that's it. What's the difference? Well, the natural person is those who really live entirely on the human level. There is nothing beyond the physical life. There is nothing beyond just material needs. And there is no hope beyond this world. We'll make it a little more personal. The natural person lives only by the flesh in that they only live and make decisions by what they can comprehend, what they can figure out, what makes sense, and not in response to the living God who may tell them otherwise. The natural person may actually admire Jesus. They may attend a gathering that's in the name of Jesus, but really, when it really comes down to it, they essentially believe the cross is pretty foolish. It may be a really bad tragedy, but that's about it. And the natural man makes God into his own image and therefore makes all his decisions, even packaging them in spiritual language, according to his own desires. The natural man does not accept or understand the things of God because he does not have the Spirit of God dwelling in him. Period. 
What does it mean he cannot understand? Well, think about some examples. There's no understanding of sexual purity because all they understand is satisfaction, self-satisfaction. There's no understanding of sacrifice because all there is is selfishness. There's no understanding of generosity because there's only greed. And there's no understanding of the eternal, just the moment and living for that moment. And it doesn't mean they end up being the worst Adolf Hitler you can imagine. What it means is that they're very self-absorbed and self-centered. The individual is confused. They are lost, to use the language of the Bible, emotionally, lost materially, lost intellectually, because they are in rebellion spiritually. And when, here's what happens, when the pleasure of sin fails to satisfy, because that will happen eventually, or when the pain of sin brings suffering, either your own or it's brought into you, here's what will happen for the natural man. They will resign themselves to this. Well, that's life. Or, I'm only human. You heard those phrases? That's not the life God intends for us. And that kind of humanness is well short of God's design. Of course, there are lots of people who claim to be spiritually wise. There are few who truly are. So instead of actually thinking about who is spiritual and claiming to be, if you will, and you go, oh, no way. You talk about loving Jesus, but you're over there sleeping with your girlfriend, so forget it. So before you start looking outward at people, why don't you just have a little conversation with God? Paul says this later in in 2 Corinthians because this is exactly what the Corinthians do. They actually start getting more pride about it. He's like, you need to judge a sin in in your church. He's like, yeah, that's right. We need to judge a sin in here. And they're ignoring themselves. Here's what Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Ooh, what does that mean? Exactly what he says. To see if you're a Christian. He says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, is in you? Don't you realize this? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So how do you test yourselves? How do I know if Jesus Christ is is in me? How, How do I know if I have the mind of Christ, as it says, if I'm just thinking with my own mind? Well, let me close by telling you what the spiritual man does. You can read 1 John. It's one of the most convicting books you can read. It's a great test, though, for your faith. And it's not testing your works. It's not testing all things you do or know. What it's testing is your heart attitude, how you truly see the world and how you truly engage with your Lord. See, the spiritual man, as opposed to the natural man, knows that this is not all there is. They know there's much more than just living and dying in this world. That this is truly just a speed bump to eternity. And the spiritual man knows that his decisions have eternal consequences. And the spiritual man walks by faith, not by sight. And he lives constantly in response to what the Holy Spirit is saying and speaking. And the Holy Spirit takes 
those foolish words of the cross and it makes them the core of the spiritual man's identity. I am a chosen son of God. I am approved. I am loved. And so I look out at the value system of the world which says you are successful or you are good or whatever and go, I don't care. My identity is in Christ. My identity is not my job. It's not in my success. It's not in the relationships I have or the pedigree or the education. It is in Christ and that never changes. That's the spiritual man. The spiritual man realizes that he has been judged. And the judge, because of the work of Jesus Christ, has declared him innocent. And the Holy Spirit takes the word of the resurrection and gives us hope. Hope beyond this body. I pray, right? Let's hope beyond the body. Hope beyond my situation. Why? Because I've seen God go from nothing to something. I've seen ashes go to beauty. I've seen death go to life. What else does he have to prove? That he can take a situation that's totally destroyed and go, boop, here I am. Resurrection. The spiritual man believes that, even if it's difficult, trusts in that. The Holy Spirit, more than anything though, causes us to accept the words of Scripture very words of God. This becomes your governing authority in your life. This becomes the thing by which you submit your desires to the desires of God. Only the Spirit of God can make that happen. Because there are things in here, as I said, that will not make sense, that will not feel good, and will not be liked by the world. But the spiritual man says, this is it. This is my rule of faith. And the Spirit of God never goes against this. So you can tell me all the things to think the Spirit's telling you, and I'll go, test it. I know the Spirit of God says that, you know, I probably shouldn't be sleeping outside this marriage, or maybe sleeping before marriage, but I just feel like we're in love. Love never leads someone into sin. Ever. Scripture becomes the governing authority, not what you feel, not what you like. And as we're instructed by the Holy Spirit in God's ways, as hard as they are sometimes, we actually want to follow them. And the Holy Spirit in us is fighting. Galatians 5, right? The Spirit is against the flesh. He's fighting. We no longer want to practice sin. Will we sin? You bet. You sin today, you may have sinned while you're here. But the Holy Spirit fights in us and compels us not to desire sin, not to practice sin, and instead to confess and to repent and to be open about our brokenness. Only the Spirit of God can do that because the world tells you to hide your weakness. Hide your brokenness. You'll be rejected, not forgiven. You'll be shunned, not embraced. That's not the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit leads us toward obedience, not out of fear, but out of love and a desire to honor God with our minds and our bodies and our work. And lastly, the Spirit of God gives us love for the church. 
if you have a spirit that's causing you to judge the church, a spirit of God that's leading you away from the church, I can have my Christianity apart from the church. That is not the spirit of God. How do I know that? Because the spirit of Jesus is what we're talking about, and Jesus died for the church that he loved. Jesus loves the church. And so the Spirit of God caused you to love the church in all her brokenness. No one's saying she's perfect because no one's saying you're perfect or me and we're the church. And the Spirit of God gives us a different view of the world around us. We no longer judge the world, right? We understand the world. Wisdom of God tells us that they're broken, they're rebellion, and they're blind. I'm not going to beat a blind man upside the head and go, Why can't you see, idiot? I'm going to have compassion on that blind man. I'm going to love that blind man. I'm going to hope more than anything for that blind man to see. That's a different way to look at the world. And that's the Spirit of God. So in essence, those who are mature and those who are wise and those who are spiritual like the Corinthians so want to be are nothing more than those who love Jesus, want to know Jesus so they can love like Jesus and be with Jesus and have other people do the same. And this is not a Jesus that's new and proved for our culture and change. This is the Jesus of the Bible. The one that's been revealed by Scripture. Because the Spirit of God always leads us to God's Word. And those who do not love Jesus, quite frankly, could care less about Jesus, His Word, His church, or His mission. Because this is all there is for them. But for the spiritual man, we know that this is not all there is. And we're reminded every Sunday, as we gather that we need to go back to basics. We need to rest on the cross. Many of us have been following the spirits of this world and claiming to be Christians. I pray that you will see that those spirits only lead to death. They do not and will not ever satisfy. You can only be satisfied by the pure water of Jesus Christ. And for those who are Christians and you've been kind of faking the funk, if you will, having to look but not actively serving and and loving Jesus, this is the place to confess that. This is the place where Jesus comes and says, I already knew that. I'm glad you finally recognized that. By my grace, I opened your eyes so you could see. And you move forward, now starting to walk with the Spirit, now starting to listen to Him, and take comfort that He actually is speaking and guiding you, and you're not doing life by your own, because Jesus says, I will be with you always, and it's through His Spirit that He is. So I'll pray for all of us. I'll pray for not just... Um, that we'll suddenly become super spiritual, amazing Christians, but honestly, they'll become Christians that are dependent on the Spirit.